electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Last Call, winter is over. There's a new signal that housing may soon turn red hot again. A Bidenomics bombshell. Why are so many voters shrugging off record stocks and a sound economy? We've got the shock polls. Crisis in the Red Sea. The stakes for the global economy dialing up as Iran-backed rebels prepare more havoc. Running on empty. A do-or-die moment looms for many would-be Tesla rivals. The FedEx warning that a share is moving big time after hours. And we asked, and you answered, which Magnificent Seven stock will lose its magnificent status in the next decade? The surprising results and much more over the hour. So belly up or buckle up because last call is up right now. All right, welcome, everybody. Good evening here. Good afternoon at West. I am Brian Sullivan. All of that ahead over the hour. But first up on Last Call, the holiday rally continues to jingle all the way. Sorry. Don't laugh, Max. It's the best I can do. All right. Another day, another all-time high for the Dow. The S&P 500, not far away from its own record. A mere, what, less than a percent from its all-time high. Wow, the Nasdaq notching its ninth straight positive day. Now back above 15,000. But if you haven't been paying attention, the big winners in the little run that we've had, the small caps, the Russell 2000, up another 2% today. The Russell up 12% this month. That is three times better than the S&P 500 again this month. Small caps have been ignored, left for dead for years, and suddenly they're popping. But with new highs, of course, comes a curious development. The bull run has been on such a tear that it is lifting some of the most beaten down, but still big name stocks on Wall Street. Maybe the market version of dumpster diving, going after companies that investors left on the heap for much of the year. Case in point, those names, Estee Lauder, Enphase, Moderna, all reputable companies, but ones that got obliterated much of the year and now, for whatever reason, are roaring back. And we ask that question because why? And what does all this tell us about the macro market? Well, let's dig in and lead it off with our A-list panel. That includes Carson Group Chief Market Strategist Ryan Dietrich and Veritas Financial Managing Partner Greg Branch. And uh, Ryan, congrats, by the way, named by Business Insider, one of the, the few that got it really right this year. So congrats, Ryan. Good to have you on the program tonight. Congrats, um, listen, it's nice. We all have 401ks, 529s. It's good to see the market going up. But when I see some of these really beaten up companies also participating I just kind of it kind of gets my radar up a bit. What's your take? Yeah, Brian, thanks for having me back. I mean, listen, I've come on you for a while saying we expected to see this rally broaden out. We expected to see small and mid caps participate. That, that was really hard to say in September and October 
Fortunately, we're there. And I get it, some of these beaten up names, but let's be honest, you know, they're beaten up for a reason, right? Interest rates were higher. Interest rate, a lot of higher interest rates really haven't helped small caps. We get that, haven't helped mid caps. Now the Fed is likely done. So that's kind of that kindling to get things going. I guess the big question, though, again, is it's not just about seven stocks anymore. Kind of come on with you for a while saying we didn't buy that. It's just nice to see this broad participation, right? To see these different groups that are going higher. So, sure, some of these speculative names are just that speculative. But again, there's a lot of stocks at Russell 2000. And lastly, look at the S&P 600, right? It's saying Russell 2000, a lot of those don't make money. That's true. I get it. Russell's, although the S&P 600, a lot of those small caps are making money. So there's a little bit of more safety there. And, that, and the 600 has actually been outperforming the Russell 2. Again, I think that's more of a constructive signal if you look under the surface of the market here. Yeah. You know, Greg, what do you make of it? Because it's good to see the macro markets going up. But to my point earlier, I don't want to call it sort of the you know, the dash for trash or whatever, because a lot of these are very good companies. Estee Lauder, very solid company, very well-known company. But yet it's like, what changed that they were ignored and or actively sold for 11 months? And suddenly everyone's like, oh, welcome back to the party. Only sentiment, Brian, only sentiment. And one of the things uh, that Ryan left out is some of these companies were not beaten up because of what the Fed is doing. Some of these companies were beaten up for fundamental reasons. So Estee Lauder is citing headwinds in China. Uh, sorry, uh, that, uh, Pfizer is slashing its guidance. Uh, you know, there were fundamental reasons for each of these stocks to be beaten up. And when you get past that and start to overlook, hey, this company cut its guidance by 20 percent. This company's cutting its workforce by 11 percent, citing a challenging environment. When you see those things start to rally, that's when we know we're not in a fundamental rally. That's when we know we're in a sentiment driven rally, which history has shown has very short legs. And so, look, Kudos to Ryan. He's been right. I missed some things this year. I've been wrong. I'll never run away from that. But I also won't chase the tape. And so if I'm going to participate in a non-fundamental rally, which I have to do, I too am going to go dumpster diving, but a very different dumpster. I'm going to look at things that just haven't participated. I'm probably going to look at an index so that I'm not isolated and exposed heavily to fundamental issues. And there's plenty of them that haven't participated. S&P Utilities, S&P Healthcare, KBW. There's plenty of dumpster fodder for us to go out and find. I think, Greg, that may be the most optimistic that we have heard you so far this year. So we're happy to have you on. Uh, Ryan, do you think this this I think you do has real legs or to Greg's point, just just little short legs? Well, yeah, we think it has real is legs. The, is this the Dachshund yeah. rally or the Great Dane rally? You know, you I, know I, I'll use dogs so as not to insult humans. So. Brian, we actually got a Great Dane about two months ago. And let me just tell you, her legs are getting a lot bigger in two months like this market. I, I do Pre think there's legs to it. Let's let's think about this for a second here. The S&P 500 is, I think, 0.59% away from an all-time high. Literally gone nowhere for two years, right? Small caps are still not on an all-time high. So, yes, this blast of strength we've seen is an awfully lot. But just think about this, Brian. Recently, more than... 60% of all the components in the S&P 500 made a 20-day high. What in the world does that mean? That's a lot of participation. That's a blast of participation. I look back 50 years. Only happened 15 times. One year later, S&P higher. You ready for this? 15 times up 18% on average. That's just one way to look at it. I get it. But a market has gone nowhere for two years with this blast of strength we've seen. Again, I lean a little uh, optimistic here. We think this, this bull market's alive and well. Next year is going to be good for investors. And small and mid, probably going to lead is what we think. I think and I got a, a D minus in, in calculus in college and probably D minus in pretty much every other math class yeah. I ever took, Greg. But 15 to 15, to, I think even with my math, I think that's 100%. <laughs> 
Look, and again, that is great technical analysis on Ryan's part. I'm, I, you know, look, I'm, I'm more partial to fundamental analysis. And let me tell you about some of the fundamentals. Typically, historically, significant downward revisions have served as a fierce headwind to equities. And one of you, Brian, as you well know, one of my biggest complaints about this year and one of the biggest reasons I was bearish is I said there was no way that we could achieve 8% earnings growth in the fourth quarter as consensus projected. Well, that 8% has been chopped into less than a third at this point. We started the quarter off expecting 8%. Now we're down to about 2.4%. Typically, that has served as a fierce headwind. Not so much this time. So it was different. I have to evaluate now whether 2024 will serve me up more of the same because there's no way that we can achieve 8% earnings growth in the first quarter as consensus is expecting. And there's no way that we can achieve 12% earnings growth for the year as consensus is expecting without meaningful and multiple earnings rate cuts, which I do not expect. Yeah, and we'll leave it there, guys. But I want to remind our audience, not just us, it's the whole world that's inflated. In fact, our market has done well, but there's been markets in Europe even and Latin America that have done better. It's like the world is awash with cash for some reason. Maybe it's a just a giant printer. By the way, guys, Ryan, Greg, appreciate you today. Appreciate you all year. Have a Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. We'll see you on the other side. Greg, I'll see you in Miami, January 4th. Uh- See you in a few weeks, my friend. Okay, I'll be in a shirt, tie, jacket, and shorts. Guys, thanks. All right. (laughs) I'll bet you. (laughs) All right, let's go inside the market and get to your stud and dud du jour. The biggest winner of the day, eh, not really for good reason, Enphase Energy up 9%. Solar company announcing they're going to lay off about 10% of their staffs. Tough to always say stocks go up because of job cuts. The biggest decliner, financial data company, fact set. Just a 2% drop there, not bad. They disappointed a bit on earnings. One extra stud. By the way, the entire CNBC graphics department. Look at this. Our friends at Bespoke Investment Research pointed out this, dare we call it, random but interesting nugget. Say what you want about the new CNBC graphics, but the NASDAQ has not had a down day since they changed. Not one down day for tech since we changed to our new look. Connection? Probably not, but we'll take it. And Bespoke, uh, awesome stat. Thank you. All right, up next, a delivery fail from FedEx. What has investors a little bit nervous right now? Plus, stunning new polls on why Bidenomics seems to be falling short with so many voters despite a pretty strong economy. That's coming up. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu.
All right, let's get now to tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the headlines you and Wall Street are going to be talking about tomorrow morning. And FedEx earnings crossed the tape tonight. The shipping giant cutting its full year guidance, struggling to wrestle with market share from competitors like UPS and DHL. Results sending shares of FDX down after hours are down about eh, just under 10 percent. But of course, they were, I believe, close to or at record highs. CNBC's Leslie Josephs has been on the story and joins us now. Leslie, what happened at Federal Express? Well, first, we had a miss on the top and the bottom line. But what investors are really looking at is this cut to guidance. It's it's not what you want to hear just a few days before the Christmas season. You know, we're in the peak shipping season. I don't know if other people are trying to get gifts out um, in the mail, uh, get them to, to people as quickly as they can. But this is not what they, they were looking to hear. Yeah. And, and is the problem lack of volume or is the problem the fact that somebody's saying, you know what, I'm just I'm not going to pay for the, the, the overnight, two overnights, two nights, whatever. I'm just going to go with ground slower, but cheaper. Yeah, it is the latter. So what the, the biggest weakness that we did see is in the express unit. That's the one that's, uh, you know, based on on air freight, um, which has really struggled kind of in the wake of the pandemic anyway. And um, those that's its biggest unit and, and contributor to revenue. And that's where we saw the biggest declines. We see that customers are shipping to cheaper options. You know, maybe this is happening throughout uh, other parts of the retail world and, and consumers looking for ways that they can cut their own costs. Um, but that does seem to be affecting FedEx as well. Are we seeing similar from, and forgive me, Leslie, because I'm not, I'm not eyeing the UPS and DHL results like you or Frank Collin. Are we seeing the same kind of messaging out of other companies? Um, we haven't seen this yet. So FedEx is kind of particular in that they report so much, uh, so many weeks behind UPS, or I guess you could say ahead of UPS. So when we get into early 2024, we're really going to get that recount of what the the peak holiday season is. But it's just with the timing, you know, you want to, investors really seem to want to hear a lot more optimism, a lot more improvement. And FedEx is is seeing that. I mean, their their net income was up, their EPS uh, was up, you know, 20 something percent over last year. So there is that kind of improvement. But when you're making cuts to revenue and seeing that sales volume decline, yeah. that, that's not what people really want to hear right now. Uh, yeah. And we're watching it because this is widely considered a leading indicator. Leslie Josephs. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Still ahead. Stocks at records. Gas prices down. Unemployment near historic lows. So why are so many voters giving the president a failing grade over the economy? Some new polls may have the answers. That's next. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. All right, welcome back to Last Call. It's honesty time. This time last year, many very, very smart people came on this network and said the American economy was going to slow down this year or maybe even fall into a recession. I was one of them. One of my five predictions for the year was for a mild recession. I was wrong, along with many others. By most accounts, the economy continues to do well. Unemployment, relatively low. You know, factor in labor force participation, etc. Spending is up. Home prices still rising in many places. 
Gas prices, while still a little higher than a year ago, a few years ago, are below where they were this time last year. And yes, stocks keep hitting records. But despite that seeming good news, President Biden's polling on the economy continues to sink to new lows. According to CNBC's All America survey out today, a whopping 66 percent of registered voters surveyed view the economy poorly or negatively. Just 33 percent of those surveyed approve of the president's handling of the economy. Another new low. 62 percent disapprove of the job that he's done. Now, this not just us. This lines up with many macro polls. New polling data from The New York Times has Trump leading Biden 46 to 44 percent among registered voters. That gap even wider with Gen Z and Gen X voters. And I know whatever you think of the polls, because let's be honest, many have been really wrong the last couple of years. Pretty much every single poll, Times, NBC, Quinnipiac, Siena, whatever, shows the same result. The question is, why isn't the American economy boosting Biden? With us tonight is Actum Consulting Co-Chair and former OMB Director Mick Mulvaney and University of Chicago Institute of Politics Director and former U.S. Senator Heidi Heitkamp, also a CNBC contributor. Senator, uh, what's I don't get the disconnect. Do you? Well, I th- you know, there's macroeconomic numbers, right? But that's not what votes. What votes is your pocketbook. Do people feel better? I think there's still a lot of fatigue from the pandemic. I think that people are saying, look, I don't seem to be getting any further ahead. The other numbers we should be looking at is the amount of consumer debt that people are running up. And also the the, the widening gap between people who have a lot of money and people who don't have a lot. I mean, every day, on Facebook, in towns like North Dakota, people mm-hmm. read about people who can't afford snowshoes or, you know, boots for, for their children. And so that all adds to the fatigue. So, you know, and, and what a politician says, I'm not paying attention to polls. That politician is not telling the truth. <laughs> yeah, well, the president actually said as much the other day. You're looking at the wrong polls or something. But, Mick, I think I think Senator Heidkamp nailed it perfectly. We've said it. Listen, if you have a steady job, if you own assets, if you're older, you own a home, you own stocks, you're doing great. And you're wondering why everybody's complaining. But if you're a renter, if you're you're working two or three jobs to make ends meet, which is a huge chunk of the economy, 62 percent of people say they are living paycheck to paycheck. That, I think, is the problem. It is a problem. And if you're buying things on a credit card, credit card debt is at all time highs right now. Even if you're paying a little bit less than you might have paid a year ago for gas, if you're putting it on your credit card, um, you're going to end up paying more because the interest rates are up. Your mortgage rates are going up. Your car payments are going up. Uh, There's a bunch of different reasons that people can be upset. I think Heidi's right about a bunch of those different things. I actually think income inequality does make a little bit of a difference. It doesn't when you're doing okay. You don't care how somebody else is doing as long as you're doing okay. But if you don't feel like you're doing okay, you do pay attention to those Mm -hmm. other sorts of things. And I also think there's another thing we haven't talked about, which is Biden's just struggling right now uh, across the board. The borders is not going well for him. Even even Biden-friendly networks are showing, you know, stories about how bad the border is. He's getting pummeled on his policies by members of his own party on his handling of the situation in Gaza. He's just not popular right now. And what I think he's learning is that when you are a popular president, you take a lot of credit for stuff that you haven't had anything to do with. When you're an unpopular president, you get blamed for stuff that might not even be your fault. And I think that's where he is right now. You're seeing you're just seeing him not be able to capitalize on anything because nothing's breaking his way at all. Yeah. And it's, you know, Senator, it's 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 interesting because people say, well, credit card debt's over a trillion dollars, which it is. 
But as a percentage of income of what they call debt service, it's not really that high. And I actually spoke with a, a, a young woman at a retailer that I go to, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I've known her for a couple of years now, so we chat. And I asked her how she's getting by with all the inflation. She said credit cards. And then, and then she said, well, my goal is to move out. She was living with her parents still. And I thought maybe that's the yeah. reason debt service is not as high, because people can't afford their own housing. So, of course, they have a little more money to spend on credit cards. But that's not a, if that's the case, that's not a net positive for a lot of 30 and 35 year olds that just want to build a life for themselves. Well, and I have to give a shout out to you, Brian. You're the one who started talking about what was happening with insurance rates. I raise this every place I go, and I say, how about your insurance? And the room explodes. They talk about their car insurance going up. If you are carrying debt on your credit card, think about this. Some rates are as high as 20%. And if you don't have a good credit rating, and who doesn't have a good credit rating? Young people don't. He promised that their student loans would be forgiven. Their student loans are coming back. And so, it, you know, when, when you talk about the economy, the most important thing is to think about the voter and walk in their shoes. What's what's going on in their life right now? And it may not be, you know, that GDP is growing and that unemployment. They say, of course, unemployment is low. Mm-hmm. I'm working two of those jobs. That's right. I think it, I think the insurance. Thank you for the shout out, Senator. I think I think insurance <laughs> is probably the hidden inflation story that not enough people are indeed focusing on. I, I want to get to something, guys, and I hate I hate talking about straight politics, but we got big breaking news, so kind of have to do it. You both saw the, the just an hour ago, whatever. Colorado State Supreme Court has disqualified President Trump from the 2024 ballot. The argument being the U.S. Constitution does not allow anyone who's engaged in an insurrection to serve as an officer for the United States. So that's Colorado. It'll probably be appealed. The Supreme Court of the United States may overturn it either way. Mick, you tweeted out that this is a gift. I, I, I think this is a giant gift to President Trump. Number one, he was never going to win Colorado anyway. Those nine electoral votes won't matter whatsoever. And again, I just feel like it's going to make him, whatever you think of it, look like a martyr. He's going to be a victim. It's going to simply fuel this narrative that he's had now since the very first case was brought against him in Manhattan. If Donald Trump gets reelected president, the person I think most singularly responsible will be Alvin Bragg, because that case was so weak against him. It's allowed Trump to look at every other case that's come down and said, oh, this is just like that political hit job in Manhattan. This is more of the same thing. The left is, is so torn by Trump derangement syndrome that they just they don't understand. This helps him. He's going to turn this from a negative, what they think is a negative, into a positive. It will help him make himself look like a victim of a weaponized government. And if they can, and his message is this. If they can do this to me, imagine what they can do to you. And it's working right now. Senator. I have to disagree with Mick. I don't think the left is looking at this as a victory. I think the left right now is saying, look, I don't know what the law is. I've interviewed people, conservative lawyers, who actually make a pretty strong case that he's not qualified. But this is bad optics. It's bad politics. And even people on the left get it. They understand that the le- the one thing that you can do to propel Donald Trump forward is continue to let him play the martyr card. And that's exactly what this decision yeah, will do. It was a 4-3 decision Senator, in Colorado. I expect Senator, the court's going to reverse it. 
I hear you. I'm looking forward to having more of these conversations. When I come to your program in Chicago in January, I'm really looking forward to that. But I got to tell you, I was in the green room here at CNBC, and there's another network from this same company on, on TV tonight. And believe me, they are running victory laps over this. So I hear what you're saying, but it's not universally held on the left. You know, and, and what I love yeah. about both of you is not only the, the fact that you're, you're polite and respectful, and, and th- which is rare in, in the media these days, but you're both sort of center where you are, right? Senator Hyde can't probably center left, Mick, center right. <laughs> And, Am I now? It's, it's, well, Senator, here's the thing. Senator, like, it's, it's, Nick uh, it's, used to be far, far, far right. But he's right. coming to talk to you at the, the University right of Chicago, so we'll give him a break. Okay, so it's the holiday party season. Okay, so, of course, you know, you're, we're encountering a lot of people recently, and people, all they want to do is talk about next, the stock market or next year's election, Senator. And all I get is this. And I live in New Jersey. Most of my friends are probably center-left, left-ish, right? And they'll say, I voted for Biden in 2020. I just can't. I can't do it again. I'm not going to vote for the other guy, but I'm just I'm just not going to vote. I hear that over and over and over again. And I do wonder if let's say other states follow this and Trump is taken out. Could that actually be a negative for Biden as maybe a centrist conservative steps in? Well, I, I mean, I think Nikki Haley right now is saying, okay, probably not a good decision um, for even uh, her. But the bottom line is, if this thing goes to trial and he is actually convicted, it's going to be a tough uh, a road to hoe uh, to make sure that he stays on the ballot. And so, you know, these these are difficult times. I think that if you're Joe Biden right now, you want to run against Donald Trump because you want people to fear a Donald Trump presidency. And you've seen the numbers. Let, let, me, yeah, let, let me ask you to Haley, let me ask it. Senator, I know we got to go, but I'm not. Let, let me Senator. Hunt, <laughs> let me ask it a more direct way. Is Donald Trump the only one that Biden can beat? You know, that's not what the Biden administration would say, but current polling would tell you that other Republicans do better against Biden than Trump does. And, and Mick, I know no one's, everyone's going to come at me and say electoral college. I get it. Yeah. Political science major. But does a third party candidate have a shot here? Uh, uh, Robert I, F. Kennedy I, Jr., Joe Manchin, because I, I do believe Manchin will jump in. Yeah, I do. I, I don't know anybody who's clamoring saying, oh, if only Joe Manchin ran for president, oh, if only Robert Kennedy. I think right now those are placeholders for fi- folks who are simply disappointed with the current options of Biden versus Trump. I think you, you asked the right question for the senator. I think it's this. The Republicans want to run against Joe Biden and the Democrats want to run against Donald Trump. The, the issue is this, is that Donald Trump is probably the only Republican who can lose to Joe Biden. And Joe Biden is the only Democrat who can lose to Donald Trump. Um, in, in those types of circumstances, you get a chance for maybe a third party. I just don't see it because I don't see the person out there. Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Oprah Winfrey, uh, Michelle Obama gets in the race maybe, but no one's talking about that. Uh, Joe Manchin is not going to move the needle one way or the other. There you go. Mick well, Bo- and, and, and go. Nick's, Nick's comments show why he's going to be um, with us as a fellow at the Institute of Politics. <laughs> he's got it absolutely right. My neighbor's daughter goes to the University of Chicago. When do I get my invite, Senator Heidkamp? I love Chicago. Well, Senator, We'd love to have I think you. She, I think she actually was in a class with you. I won't say that. All right. Mick Mulvaney, Senator Heidi Heidkamp, thank you very much. All right. Thanks, y'all. On deck. It could be the biggest sign yet that housing may take yet another leg up. You're going to hear from Howard Hughes CEO David O'Reilly about it next. Welcome back to Last Calls. Interest rates fall. Real estate-related stocks are going to the moon. Don't believe us? Take a gander at real estate brokerage firm Compass, up 28% in the past month. 
Redfin says, hold my beer. They're up 48 percent on pace for the first six week win streak in three years. Shares of Zillow up 48 percent of the past month. That, my friends, it's best month ever in the stock market. So what does this say about what may be around the corner for housing in 2024? Well, your next guest is one of the best voices to weigh in on that topic. Joining us once again, David O'Reilly, the CEO of Howard Hughes Corp. They manage a nationwide portfolio, which includes more than 6,000 residential units, more than 9 million square feet of office and retail space, including the amazing, spectacular, beautiful and delicious tin building in New York where we did the show. Uh, David, thank you. Good to see you again. Great to be back, Brian. If you're a... I don't, what do you call them? Existing, used home seller? <laughs> Existing home seller, me selling my house sure. to you versus you as a new home builder where you can choose location, size, <clears throat> amenities, everything. Are you in a far better position for housing than the macro, you know, me selling you a home market? Absolutely. The new home market has been extraordinary in 2023. And I think heading into 2024, we're going to have the golden age of new home construction. Largely because not only can you pick size, location, all those things that you talked about, but national home builders have been able to buy down mortgage rates and offer a lower mortgage rate for buyers than a regular seller of a, as you put it, used home could. I want to live in Summerlin, Nevada, I want, which I do probably. I want to live in the Woodlands, Texas, which I do. Uh, and I come to you and I want to buy a home. What's my mortgage rate? Do, you know, upper, you know, better credit rating. I get there's a lot of variables. In general, most home builders, we see buying down the face rate 150 to 200 basis points. Wow. So you can get down in today's seven and a half mortgage rate market to 6%. And I would imagine that's going to go down in the months ahead, given what bond yields have done. I would think so. And I think as mortgage rates decline, it increases demand for new home construction, increases demand for homes. But I don't see rates coming down far enough to spur the supply side. The, as you put it, used home inventory, the resale market coming back onto the market because you're asking people to trade out of a two, three or four percent mortgage yeah. into a six. That's still a bridge too far. So that supply demand imbalance should get worse into 2024, driving demand for new home construction, driving demand for Howard Hughes. There's land. just no supply. I mean, I know you're not on the, 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 the existing home market, but every, I mean, I'm only half joking. Every home in that's for sale. My town has some it's like over a sinkhole, some, you know, Amityville horror. Right. There's just not a lot of good quality out there. Is that what you're hearing in your communities around America? People say, I, I've got to come to you because because this is where I want to live and the house. I can get what I want. You can get what you want. And there's choices. We're going to sell close to a thousand homes in Bridgeland just northwest of Houston, which is going to be among the best years in the history of that community. We're going to sell a thousand homes, new construction in Summerlin, largely of folks moving out of the coasts in Pacific Northwest into higher quality of life, lower tax states, plenty of new home construction, plenty of different builders, lots of choices to choose from. Hard to find in the suburbs of New Jersey where there's not a lot of new construction, but in great places like Summerlin in northwest Houston, Bridgeland, the Woodlands, Plenty of opportunity. Yeah, just also in a lot of these crowded northeast, there's no land. There's nowhere to build anything, anything new. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to the commercial side. Again, we referenced the tin building, the seaport. Just if you guys, if you haven't been to New York and seen them go down there, they're just fantastic. Um, what are you expecting from commercial real estate? Because there's all the again, like this year, there's all these dire headlines about next year. There's absolutely the bifurcation of the have and the have nots. And the headlines have largely been centered around office. And we've seen it in in a lot of the publications even today. 
And there is going to be a rebalancing. A lot of debt maturities, the looming debt maturity mm. wave will be coming for office buildings in 24 and 25. And lenders and owners are going to have to look each other in the eye and figure out what is the right leverage level with a higher interest rates, lower debt service coverage, and a stagnant NOI as there's been a greater shift of work for home. But that's not all office buildings. Those great locations, mm -hmm. short commutes, highly amenitized, walkable to great amenities are performing well. And we're seeing CEOs make decisions on where they want their business based on where they can attract their workers back to the office. Yeah. And, I mean, we, today in New York, I I'm sure you saw it, the Chrysler building. You know, the vaunted legend, one of the most famous buildings in New York, mm -hmm. if not America, is being what put up for sale because its owners having having issues. But that's a building that's probably old. It's dark. It doesn't have the modern amenities. It's going to be those are you're not talking about those types of properties, are you? No, no. I'm talking about buildings around the corner in New York City. And we don't own this. So I'm talking somebody else's book. One Vanderbilt. Gorgeous building. Yeah. Incredible rents. I'm sure it's well occupied. Great amenities. And you, by the way, Chrysler buildings across the street. So it's not a long walk, but you pop right up at it. If you live in Westchester, Connecticut, your train comes right in. Go right up. Absolutely. Have a couple drinks after work. Right back home. That's right. what you're talking about. No, I am. And that, and that in New York is a short commute. That's an hour. Right. In our communities where we're attracting businesses into the woodlands and to Summerlin, we're offering eight to ten minute commutes. And I think that change in quality of life, that change in state tax are continuing to drive not just people, but companies to migrate into these great. Leave communities. us with some optimism for next year. Geographically, where I know your team, maybe you don't want to give it away. Is there a next hot area in America? I, I based on where we bought 36,000 acres, I believe the next hot area is Phoenix in the West Valley of Phoenix on the way to L.A., where the future I-11 will connect Phoenix up to Las Vegas. We see that as the next great area for both residential demand and commercial demand as we build that next great city. Well, I'm coming to Scottsdale in, in January. It's the perfect time to be there. I'll poke around a little bit, as they say. Love to show you around. David O'Reilly, thank you very much. Howard Hughes Corp. Really appreciate it. Merry Christmas. We'll see you in the new year. Happy holidays. All right, best of luck. All right, coming up, a shocking new report from the Wall Street Journal on how many wannabe Tesla competitors may soon go bust. Plus... Tensions on the Red Sea, the escalating scramble to protect critical commerce from militants backed by Iran. All right, welcome back. In the race for EV dominance, many startups are falling behind, way behind, with a growing number struggling just to stay afloat. Not our opinion. That's according to a new eye-opening report out of the Wall Street Journal. Joining us tonight for more is one of the authors of the piece, and that is Wall Street Journal reporter Amrith Ram Kumar. Amrith, thank you very much for coming on. I, I, I think this was one of, if not the most read on the journal pretty much all day. I'm looking at it. I knew things were bad. I didn't quite realize some companies have weeks, weeks of cash left. Yeah, it's pretty striking running the numbers and finding that at least 18 publicly traded EV and battery startups could run out of cash by the end of 2024. And these companies are slashing costs. They're trying to raise new money and they're in survival mode just a few years after they went public and raised billions of dollars in some cases. So, yeah, at the end of the third quarter, it was pretty dire for some of the companies and they're doing what they can to, to stay afloat. But it's just a reminder of sort of the bubble we saw just two years ago or so. Yeah, in fact, somebody, an asset manager, I think Gavin Baker was his name in your article. He said it's the most, this is his words, not mine, insane <laughs> bubble that he has ever seen or something like seen in years. Is the, In your reporting, did people question 
why a lot of these companies went public in the first place? Because looking at their numbers, I'm like, what? That company, how did it, how did it become public? Yeah, and to Gavin's credit, he, he said that in 2021, too, at the time when a lot of these companies were going public. Mm-hmm. And now we've seen, again, tens of billions of dollars of market value just destroyed in a couple of years. And that's exactly right, that a lot of these startups were years away from making their first cars or their first batteries, and they had a lot of work to do in the lab and technologically to make these things work. And they weren't ready to go public. It's a good reminder of the crazy SPAC boom that we saw a few years ago. We saw all these buzzy projections to investors and a lot of individuals and big institutions on Wall Street bought in. I mean, it's crazy. We saw companies like BlackRock, Fidelity, Coke Industries, Palantir, very sophisticated investors also got burned by a lot of these companies. Yep. Amrith Kumar, The Journal, by the way, I posted it to social and LinkedIn as well. Add my little touch. Great piece. Uh, important story. Amrith, thank you. Have a good night. Thank you for having me. Happy holidays. You're very welcome. Thank you. Happy holidays as well. All right. Meantime, the crisis in the Red Sea ramping up a series of attacks on ships prompted many to reroute their shipments. Only problem is that new route takes longer and costs a lot more. Maersk CEO Vincent Clark joined Money Movers today to talk about the impact. It's anywhere uh, from two to, uh, to four weeks of, uh, of delay in transit. It's a 7,300 kilometers or about detour. So it takes a, it takes a while to, to actually perform it. Now, so far, about 35 billion in cargo has already been diverted from the Red Sea, and that number expected, obviously, to go up. More about the situation tonight. CBC's global logistics reporter, Lorianne LaRocco, has been doing great work on this. And, uh, you know, I'm a geek for this stuff as well, Lorianne. So <laughs> it's been a long day. Thanks for coming back in. Sure. Um, these numbers, just to get through the Suez, is expensive. It's also expensive to go around the, the Cape of Africa. Who's, who's making money here? The ocean carriers are going to make the money. Uh, They're going to make money, not lose money. They're going to absolutely make money off of this. And here's why. So to traverse over through the the Suez Canal, it costs between $500,000 to $600,000 per per container ship. Wait, that's the toll? That's the toll. $600,000. I'm not going to complain about the Holland Tunnel ever again. Nope, don't do it. But, but yeah, no, so, th- so they're saving on that. And so I got tonight, MSC is now going to charge $4,000 per 40-foot container. Okay. Okay. From India to the United States. Right now, it's about $2,000. So you're looking at a 30 to 40% markup starting in January. So they're not going to pay the Suez toll. Correct. And they're going to just pass on the higher charges to their customer to go that extra, what is it, the three weeks to go around Africa. Exactly. And I've had a lot of CEO, like, like logistics CEOs tell me, call me tonight. They're furious. Because they're going to have to eat these higher costs. Exactly. And it's reminiscent of what they paid during COVID. So, really? Well, that's what they're afraid of, because you're looking at the, the, the sharp increase in price. And this is what happened at the start of COVID. And so what everybody is looking at, there's 20 percent extra capacity out there, vessels that are not being used. So right now, with this longer route, yeah. it actually creates like an artificial contraction. Uh, vessels. I have friends in Egypt. I've been there. Uh, the Egyptian economy is struggling. It's got three. It's got three main sources of money. It's got tourism, which yep. is getting destroyed. It's got uh, some natural gas, and it's got the Suez Canal. The Suez Canal is a major source of funding for the government. I got to imagine this is bad news for Egypt. Absolutely, and this, it's it's amazing that no one's really threading that needle in terms of this is possibly a powder keg from a geopolitical standpoint. We just it, did. We just did. We just broke. Because Egypt is a critical negotiating partner between the Israel-Hamas war. Exactly. And now they've got to deal with their own 
domestic crisis, which means they've made less time and money and effort to help with Israel and Hamas. Well, exactly. And also their economy is exceptionally fragile right now. So look at all the money that they're missing. 57 vessels times five hundred, six hundred thousand dollars $600,000. It's a lot of money. And that's just going to keep going up. All right. I want to switch from rail or sea to rails because I think this broke today or, or tonight. And I hadn't heard of it until you flagged it. So thank you. Which is that U.S. Customs and Border Protection is shutting down some or a lot of U.S. rail traffic between Mexico and Texas in two critical locations. What's going on? So CPB shut down on Sunday um, the, the rail passages for El Paso and Eagle Pass. And these are huge, huge trade conduits. Over $34 billion goes through those two, those two points in a month. And they're doing that, as you know, in, in terms of fighting the migrants coming over, in terms of... Uh, but are they, is it because the, the trains are... I, I've seen trainloads of, of migrants coming up through Mexico, but are they worried that these... Listen, human traffickers are fentanyl. They're making a lot. They're making yeah. billions of dollars off human misery and suffering. Is that because they're afraid the trains might have... Migrants in them or on them or drugs or guns or there's actually video. There's actually video out there of migrants riding the trains. And so, you which know, which is dangerous and it's ex- exceptionally dangerous. But it's also dangerous for them as also to the officers. You can't stop it. And you've had you, wow. uh, Union Pacific and BNSF. Those are the two railroads that are going to be impacted by this. Wow. Lorianne LaRocco, Red Sea, the rails. We appreciate it. Thank you. Two big stories. All right. Coming up, the Magnificent Seven that is most likely to get off the Magnificent Seven list. We took it to you as a poll. We'll get the answer and Herb Greenberg's response next. All right, time now for your daily RBI. And given this lovely market rally that we are in, we wanted to keep this one laser focused on stocks and maybe some opportunity for you because while right now we are collecting all of Wall Street's research's favorite stocks, Barron's is out with their list of their 10 favorite stocks for 2024. So if you didn't see it or don't subscribe, don't worry, we do. And by the way, they had a great year this year. All right, so here are Barron's 10 favorite stocks. For next year, in alphabetical order. It's not preference, just alphabetical order. China-based Alibaba makes the list. Barron's calls them cheap. Google parent Alphabet, back on the list for the second year in a row. Then Barrick Gold. Barron says the mining stocks have not gone up with the price of gold, but that could change. Next up, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, a juggernaut with more than $150 billion in cash. Also making their top 10, vaccine maker BioNTech, which got crushed this year. But Barron says the future pipeline for cancer Treatments looks good at that company, calling it one of the best run big energy companies in the world. Barron's like Chevron as well. They add that Hertz looks, quote, cheap enough to be a winner and notes that 90 percent of the American rental car market is controlled by just three companies. Barron's also likes Madison Square Garden sports. Get this. They note the value of the Knicks and the Rangers is less than the value of the entire company. Huh. Finally, the last two are Pepsi and U-Haul rounding out Barron's top 10 for the year. If you missed any, don't worry. We'll post it to social. We're also going to track these names, see how they do. Hopefully random, but investable. All right, staying with stock picks. Last night, we told you about the, quote, perish risk of some of the magnificent seven, courtesy of our friend and contributor Herb Greenberg and his substack on the street. The theory being some of these so-called magnificent seven stocks may not be so magnificent a few years from now, right? 
changing environment, regulatory, competition, whatever. So we took the question to you on X and polled you saying, which of the seven, which four of the seven might be the most vulnerable? Well, X only allows for four poll options. So we narrowed it down using your answers to Meta, Tesla, Alphabet, and NVIDIA. And the quote, I guess you'd call it winner, the company that is seen by you as the most at risk of losing its status as one of the Magnificent Seven is Facebook parent company Meta at just under 37%. Number two was Tesla at 32%, followed by NVIDIA at 20%, and Alphabet at just under 13%. Meta, chosen by you as the one of the seven that is the least likely to be on that list a decade from now. Let's bring back in Herb Greenberg to respond. Herb, anything that you would disagree with, with our beloved and very smart and handsome and whatever charming audience choosing Meta as their least likely Meta Mag 7 stock to make it? At this point in time, I think that actually makes a tremendous amount of sense. It's the one you would naturally choose just because of some blunders over there and the whole question about the metaverse and what's going to happen to the metaverse. And just so happens that since we're talking to AI and all of this, I decided to ask AI what it thought if it was part of the poll. And so I went to Bard and G- hmm. ChatGPT. ChatGPT said it didn't want to play. But um, but Bard did. And even though it's known to hallucinate, it actually came down very close to the same list. And what it said about Meta was that it is shrouded in more uncertainties than any of the other. And it gave the reasons like monetizing the metaverse, you know, the troubles with that right now, competition and data privacy concerns. So I thought that was kind of neat to see. And then it went through the rest of the list. Now, here's my reaction to the list on the other ones. I think Tesla in its current form is obviously I can't see it here. And last night I joked about if X becomes the new Tesla and who knows, you know, whatever he does with it. And if Musk still holds on to his glory. Uh, But I think that's a push, especially if it remains as an EV type company and whatever it is. I also think we talked about NVIDIA. Hold on a minute. You just we just had the reporter on from the journal talking about how every company who's come after at least startup who's coming after Tesla is getting their you know what handed to them. Yeah, but the world going forward 10 years from now is going to be very different as we look at it. In Fair. fact, we may even be in we may even be in a hybrid world, right? It may not quite be EVs. It'll be hybrids. And that no, who could have said who could oh shame on you, Herb Greenberg, to say hybrid. We're not allowed to say hybrids. I've been preaching hybrids for years, and everyone's like, why do you because hate it? Because you're a smart man. You're a smart man. Because I, that very well I owned an EV and I realized there was a lot of limitations to it. That's it. Lots of limitations. NVIDIA, I think is the one where the competition issue is really a big one. NVIDIA is a fantastic company. They've done a wonderful job. But can they be, will they be there 10 years from now as one of the top? I think we're going to evolve through that. The one I would disagree with on the group, and by disclosure, I own a little bit of it, is Alphabet. Because I think Alphabet is one that has surprise on the upside because it's it's just so hated right now. But won't AI kill the need to search on Google? Uh, maybe it'll en- it'll enhance it. I, I don't know. And and even just you the, like the kid from the, the life cereal. You like the life cereal kid. Hey, Mikey, he likes it. I've never heard you say you like anything. It's amazing. Herb Greenberg, thank you very much. Appreciate it, folks. I am taking, trust me, a well-deserved real day off tomorrow. I'll see you Thursday. Shark Tank is next.
I know how to run a hair salon, but for small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. She's a small business owner too, so she knew how to help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today.